0: Episode 390 What Legislators Need to Know About Hospital Prices. Today, I speak with Gloria Sachdev and Chris Skizak.
1: American healthcare entrepreneurs and executives you want to know talking, relentlessly seeking value.
0: If you go to the Sage Transparency dashboard website, link in the show notes, you get a really graphical representation of the prices that any given hospital actually needs to charge so that they break even. You can see precisely which hospitals are operating on thin margins and which ones are not. You might be thinking, OK, so what's the big deal about this? Why is the SAGE transparency information so meaningful? Aren't hospitals, most of them, providing their financial statements already? Well, let's discuss. First of all, we have the main hospital lobbying organization coming out with press releases such as this one saying, here's some quotes, hospitals have incurred serious losses, dot, dot, dot the vast majority of America's hospitals are in serious financial jeopardy, dot, dot, dot. Combine quotes like these, and there are many, with some of the funny stuff going on in some, not all, hospital financial reporting, like counting investment losses from their venture funds, not counting endowments, or their big trusts in the math, paying C-suites way more than the average doctor or worker, or all of the varied things that get counted, or overcounted, as charity care or community benefit. Yet these hospital balance sheets are too often as much of a PR campaign as the PR campaigns. When you dig into them, you find some very wealthy organizations dressing up in tiny Tim Cratchit pants and leaning on a crutch at least whenever the cameras are rolling. So, Where are patients in all of this? Chris Deacon linked to a Qualmetrics study recently, link in the show notes. It seems that in 2020... 48% of people deferred care as a result of the pandemic. In 2022, 43% deferred care because of cost. 48% from the pandemic, 43% due to cost this past year. Wow. There are patients saying, hey, I have this giant thing growing on my arm. Is it melanoma? I don't know. But I do know if I go to the doctor, I'll be 600 bucks in the hole. So I'll wait. It doesn't matter how many medical advancements are made when almost half of the patients are making decisions like this, including patients with so-called good insurance. Look, no one would or is arguing that hospitals aren't vital. They are essential. Hospitals can be amazing places where lives get saved. Amazing doctors and clinicians work in hospitals. But putting everything I just said together, let me summarize a textbook hospital chain, One to Punch. The halo effect many hospitals enjoy is massive. And those administrators who choose to can take advantage of that halo for financial gain. When hospitals' administrators cannot manage to curtail their own spending and then demand that their communities foot the bills, then the good that a hospital can do starts to go bad. If you are a legislator, you might want to be paying attention to all of this. And when I say might be wanting to pay attention, I mean pretty much you want to be paying attention to all of this. With all of the data that is now available to especially more sophisticated employers, some companies are not building offices or plants in areas which are known to have healthcare prices that are multiples over what they should be. That might be in your legislative district or state. Healthcare prices can be the largest cost for employers after payroll. Starbucks famously spends more on healthcare than they do on coffee beans. Nearly eight of 10 employers considered healthcare costs a significant threat to affordability. So, too high hospital prices are a community problem at the Chamber of Commerce, as well as at the family and the patient level. After you listen to the show, go back and listen to the one last week with Mike Thompson, if you haven't already. It adds some context that you might want to have. Also, stay tuned for a show coming up where we talk about just all of the anti-competitive stuff that some of these hospital system administrators have decided to subject their communities to. Today, I have two titans of employer coalition building on the episode. Gloria Sachdev from the Employer Forum of Indiana, who was instrumental in standing up the Sage transparency dashboard that we talked about last week and we'll discuss a little bit more this week. Gloria is a pharmacist, which I did not know. She also sits on the board for the National Alliance of Healthcare Purchasers Coalition and Hoosiers for Affordable Health. Also on the show is the one and only Chris Skizak, who leads the Houston Business Coalition on Health. He also speaks for the state of Texas through his role with Texas Employers for Affordable Health Care. My name is Stacey Richter. This podcast is sponsored by Aventria Health Group. Gloria Satchdev and Chris Skizak, welcome to Relentless Health Value. Thank you. Glad to be here. Thank you, Stacey. So now, in general, whenever faced with pricing problems in a market, there's three ways that a market can be corrected. One way is an actual market correction, i.e. market forces, new competitors come into play and the market becomes dynamic and the supply curve and the demand curve adjust themselves to the new lower price equilibrium. Another way is legislation when market forces are so disenabled and necessary competition is impossible. And then there's litigation, which we won't get into today, but stay tuned. There's a show on this coming up. So we'll start with you, Gloria. If we're thinking about the market forces approach, i.e. we're thinking about how rising hospital prices or rising healthcare prices can be constrained vis-a-vis some sort of market force, how do you think about that?
2: For a free market to work, we need to have at least two things, right? There has to be enough competition and there has to be transparency. You can see the prices and you have options. In our market today, we haven't had traditionally the ability to compare prices. A lot of that was hidden. Per recent federal legislation, more transparency is here, both in the hospital price transparency space and coming shortly in the pharmacy space with prescription drugs. Regarding competition from all the studies across the United States, most markets are highly concentrated. In Indiana, for example, the Petra Center recently did a report and found all but two MSAs were at the highest level of concentration. So we may have just missed the boat on what can be done in the market today. I do think we're going to need federal regulations to come in. And I understand the FTC is now looking at hospital mergers and acquisitions more closely, but they also need to look at insurers. That are vertically integrating. And we have United Health Group, which owns the largest insurance company, the largest specialty pharmacy, the largest physician group, the largest PBM. It's just unbelievable how they have vertically integrated. The hospitals across the country have already vertically integrated and continue to do so. So they horizontally integrated, meaning they purchased other hospitals and now they're buying up the supply chain to capture all the referrals. So I don't have a lot of faith that the market itself alone, unless we figure out a way how to unwind and unpack all of the mergers and acquisitions and the vertical and horizontal integration, I don't know how even with full transparency, how the market is going to be able to fix this without additional policy regulation. Recapping what you said there, you said
0: there's two things which are required for market forces to be effective. One is transparency. We're thinking about this in the context of employers, not necessarily individual patients. And if you question that, listen to the show with de Desai, who, who gets into the nitty gritty of consumerism. But it's really important if employers who represent 180 million li- insured lives in, in this country today, which is a significant number here, if employers are going to be able to harness the power that they may have as the ultimate payers of, of healthcare, then it's really important, obviously, to understand what exactly you're paying for, both from a cost perspective as well as a quality perspective. But then the other aspect of this that you mentioned is that there are options to choose from. That if I decide that one entity is too high priced or their quality is too low, that I can go someplace else. And just due to the consolidation really across the industry, and one could argue it's been an arms race that the insurers consolidated, so then the hospitals had to consolidate in order to push back or however it happened, it doesn't really matter. At this juncture, What we've got is if an employer wants to take their business elsewhere, it's an it's uphouse sledding. I mean, there's many initiatives at play and there's many that are trying to do good things and some who are succeeding, but it's not easy. Chris, what do you have to add
1: here? Well, if we're talking about market forces, I echo much of what Gloria has already said to make the changes will require a comprehensive strategy. I was talking to the lead trial attorney a while back, Dan Bird, wonderful thought leader on this nationally. And we discuss the comprehensive approach. It's gonna take public relations, it's gonna take negotiations, it's gonna take legislation, and it may take litigation to make this work. The genie cannot be put back into the bottle. We're not gonna reverse consolidation. So what can we do with respect to market forces? Let me add some thought here. Number one, I think employers first and foremost would like a seat at the table in the negotiating room. And nowhere else in, on a supply chain for any company of size is the ultimate purchaser not even in the room when the negotiations are occurring. How crazy is that?
0: Yeah, for sure. And the old saying, if you don't have a seat at the table, consider yourself on the menu. And (laughs) suffice it to say, that may be the case relative to the commercial rates that some are paying.
1: And I was told that by a legislator when I was speaking to the Texas Select House for healthcare reform, those exact words were used. But the other thing I would say with respect to market forces, our coalition, like Gloria, with Indiana, we're Houston. We have some of the biggest energy companies in the world as members. We have the county, we have the city, we have large academic institutions with 20,000 employees with the consolidation that has occurred. None of these by themselves has the clout to be able to make a difference. None of them has the number of lives in a specific market to influence the change in consolidation and to effectively negotiate down towards Medicare-like pricing. So in the Houston market, we are actually in 2024 trying to launch what we consider a smart network, collecting 100,000, 200,000 lives so that we can get to the negotiating table. And again, I think that's just what employers want. But again, that's gonna have to be led, that discussion from the top down, i.e. the C-suite of these employer organizations. But I think the point I'm making is you can have a national strategy, and we like to think it's based on primary care, integration of behavioral health, and then effective referral to specialists. That can be a national strategy, but it's going to require local discussions and implementation to make that happen. Those are just a few thoughts with respect to market forces.
0: It's a bit of a David and Goliath situation. And if healthcare is the Goliath in a local market, that you need a bunch of... Davids, to gang together. Otherwise, it's just not a fair fight by any stretch. So if we're thinking about this, then relative to the legislation that may be required in order to straighten out this very skewed market that we've found ourselves with at this juncture, what needs to happen here? Certainly, you know, government regulation has its fans and its detractors.
2: I was recently in DC last week and met with some policy staffers for various committees and they asked that exact same question. So I rattled off 11 ideas. I'd like to just share maybe a few of them. One is that the contracts that the insurance companies and mainly it's the large hospital systems that are demanding anti-competitive clauses be placed in their insurer hospital contracts those would be anti-steering clauses, anti-teering clauses, all or none, most favored nation. And the federal government already banned gag clauses. So those other four really need some work. And there have been federal bills and state bills at numerous states that have tried to address these. But the lobbying power of these organizations, especially the hospital associations, is pretty significant. And it can be difficult to explain exactly what these clauses are and the impact. It has to everyone in communities in explaining that to legislators. But yes, banning anti-steering, anti-tearing, all or none, and most favored nation clauses would be one idea. The other idea is eliminating hospital facility fees for services that are rendered off of a hospital campus. So Medicare already did this and they implemented it last fall, which is great for Medicare patients. And that simply means that if you're a hospital, you get paid as a hospital on the hospital fee schedule. But if you're a clinic and just because a hospital bought you, doesn't mean they get to charge at hospital rates. They don't get to charge these facility fees. So their definition, the Medicare definition, is greater than 250 yards off of a hospital campus, and they call that site-neutral payments. And that should apply to the commercial sector and to Medicaid. And that would save, it would remove the incentive to vertically integrate because they're not going to necessarily be making so much more money because it's not a hospital and it shouldn't get paid as a hospital. Another idea is and I'll limit my comments to three ideas, is really on the PBM transparency space. The whole pharmaceutical supply chain is in a locked box. There's no transparency anywhere in in that supply chain. And so there's a Senate bill at the federal level that's been introduced, it was introduced in May, and it's a bipartisan bill, It's Senate Bill 4293, it's the PBM Transparency Act. It's great, and I would encourage states to look at that bill and perhaps put it in state statute just in case the federal government can't get it across the finish line. I know in Indiana, we are considering anti-competitive contract language, as well as these other policies that I've mentioned. Our list is, our state level policy list has got six priorities on it. There are so many more, we would support many others including banning physician non-competes. So because of this vertical integration, we have hardly any independent physicians left, especially primary care physicians. And as Chris was mentioning, ideally you have these primary care physicians, they have access to data, best, best price and quality information, and they can make referrals to the best quality at best price. But when everyone has vertically integrated such as in our state, and I I know in other states it's it's different, but in our state, we have hospital systems, private equity, and insurance companies that essentially own most of our physician practices, over 90% of our physician practices. And so how are they going to steer if they're locked into a system? Many of them get into these systems and they want to leave, but the hospital systems, the large ones particularly, have locked them in to five-year, 50-mile non-competes or two-year, 20-mile non-competes. We passed some legislation recently that said that they could buy their contract out for a reasonable price, quote, reasonable, and then they were charging the physicians $400,000. Who's to say that's reasonable? And that seems very unreasonable to me. So we have a lot of work to do to try to establish some sort of balance back in the market so that we can at least have the physicians be independent to create the referrals that Chris was mentioning.
0: Yeah, it certainly seems like consolidation is a trend that picks up speed. Because the second that these consolidated entities start getting a certain amount of market power, then they can do and regulatory capture nothing for nothing. But then the door opens up for them to exert that influence to capture even more of the market and even more of the the regulatory system. As you had listed, you've got anti-competitive contracts that include anti-steering, the anti-tiering, and the most favored nation. Listen to the show with Cora Opsall for more on like how that really reduces the options patients and employers have in an area. The facility fees can be gigantic. There's just that story coming out of Connecticut about how someone was charged like, I forget, five or $6,000 facility fee for a telehealth visit. It's... <laughs> that adds up. And... <laughs> And then you also have at the system level, these anti-competitive clauses that docs are being subject to. Doctor makes a decision to go to a health system or lets their practice get bought by a health system and then regrets it. And that's pretty much there's no going back from that or going back from that easily. Chris, I know you've got some thoughts
1: here. On the legislative piece, let me tell you a little bit about what we're doing through Texas Employers for Affordable Health Care. We know this is going to be a long-term effort to restore competition, and we're starting off with trying to, again, you mentioned prohibiting these anti-competitive contracts between hospitals and health plans. We're doing that using, Glory Gloria had mentioned, the SAGE transparency tool. We are working together to create a dashboard that we are going to be able to provide to every legislator in the state of Texas as we try to get this legislation passed in 2023. And it will show the the payer mix, it will show the operating profit margin by payer mix, commercial, Medicare Advantage, and Medicaid, And again, as has been said before, the hospitals in Texas, in aggregate, are doing just fine with all three. And operating profit margins in the commercial payer mix are 30 to 60 percent. We'll also be showing the net profit margin. Again, what we'd like to be able to do is have some dialogue with the health and hospital industry about what this all means. But we first have to educate our legislators very pleased with where we're at right now. I've spoken with 15 or so representatives and senators, and it's been interesting when, they, when we present them this data for their district, what they see. First of all, they were unaware that there was such a gap between what the employer pays and the Nashby break-even. And I'm not saying a small gap, I'm saying 200% in many cases. And it's more in the consolidated urban markets. There There are hospitals that are really, really suffering, critical access hospitals, rural hospitals. But I'm speaking more to the consolidated urban markets where most of our employers and employees live and work. So just to
0: reiterate what you just said there, because I think that's a really important point. Number one, when we say hospitals, that is not some homogenous kind of lump, right? There's different hospitals with very different situations going on within their walls. If we're talking about, however, these more urban or suburban hospitals, I think the point that you're making is that there is the Sage Transparency Project, which both Gloria and yourself mentioned, and there's a show with Mike Thompson that digs into this in some great depth. But the point is that what was determined is what the break even actually is for the hospital. That was figured out. And there are hospitals in these urban and suburban markets who are making, making 200% of what that break even is. Obviously, if we're talking about hospitals, there's a very good public relations campaign that can be toted out. So, in the absence of kind of the other side of the story, it, I could see how it would be very easy for a legislature to not understand the negative community impacts that we just were talking about of these hospitals who are charging way over what their break even is, especially if they're in air quotes nonprofit, or another way to say that is is tax exempt, because if you're charging way more double what you need to in order to break even than, you know, question mark what's going on
1: there. Exactly, exactly. A couple more observations, though, when I present this information to legislators, another thing that they notice because it's on a it's on a chart and I can't speak enough for the value of SAGE and what that can become nationally. But another thing that they notice is I thought they had more uninsured than that. And in most hospitals, at least in Texas, that uninsured is less than 1% of their mix. They also will comment, I thought they provided more charity care than that. And some do a great job, but a lot, 3 4%, I don't know what is considered appropriate given the tax advantages that these hospitals receive as a result of being tax. So those are a few different observations, but I think for us to get where we want to and It is, there's a lot of commercials in healthcare, as you well know, and unlike any other segment, price is never discussed in any commercial. There's a lot of emphasis on the marketing, but we think we need to tell that story to legislators because they listen to ads and hey, this is great. What I've heard from several legislators in the past is, when we are in legislative session, the hospitals are there, the health plans are there, The employers are not. And so the legislators think the employers must be fine with it. The health plans are saying we've got this covered. Hospitals are saying they're doing their share. For us to get to where we want to get, we will need the support of employers across the state of Texas. So I mentioned Texas employers for affordable health care are founding members, and this is growing, include Houston Business Coalition on Health, the Dallas-Fort Worth Business Group on Health the San Antonio Business Group on Health, Texas 2036, Texas will be 200 years old in in 2036, looking at these types of issues. But we're bringing others to this collective support. Actually, I was just speaking to an executive vice president of a very large international SEI union, the other day and wanting to know how we might support this. And it's important because this union represents hospital employees. And let's just say with the growing wealth of these administrations, we're not exactly seeing the trickle down theory here in terms of wage support for those who staff hospitals. Healthcare workers have some of the highest bankruptcies the legislation is important. We're just tackling one piece of legislation here in 2023, and that will be the anti-competitive language contracts. But there'll be more work to be done. As Gloria mentioned, I had no idea about these anti-competes for physicians. That's new to me. You can't well, hopefully make this you up. don't have them. So, so anyway, just my thoughts on the legislative piece. If
2: I could, just to add on to what Chris said, the employers were not at the table regarding the policy discussion when we did you know the employers forum of indiana and the employers of the forum did the first rand studies and then i went around the country and invited a bunch of other business coalitions to invite their employers and so now we've done four hospital price transparency studies and then the forum developed sage transparency as it's freely and publicly available but all of this to say is that we didn't have employers at the state house talking about what the impact has been to their budgets, to their employees, how premiums have been increasing year over year and deductibles have been increasing year over year until we had the RAND 2.0 study in which we only had 25 states at the time and Indiana was the highest priced state of 25 states. Then legislators came to us and said, what are we gonna do about this? We're such an outlier, our prices are so high. So since 2020, the Employers Forum of Indiana and Hoosiers for Affordable Healthcare have been working with legislators and we passed a bunch of bills. We prohibited gag clauses, surprise billing. One thing we did last year was require insurance companies and large not-for-profit hospitals to have public forum meetings where they have to discuss their finances every year, kind of like a school board meeting. Chris, I don't know if that would be an idea that you might be interested in. It just forces them to have a public meeting and take questions. Also, another opportunity, both at the state level and at the federal level, is really fleshing out that community benefit piece. What is the tax-exempt benefit in dollars that every hospital is getting? Should they be providing at least that much community benefit? How is community benefit going to be defined? It varies prescriptively so that it's not based on just really high fictitious charges that some hospitals have come up with. I'd also like to say that this discussion has been really geared towards certain hospitals and not all hospitals. Many hospitals are operating on very thin margins and we're not talking about them. And we can see now because of SAGE transparency, we can see which ones are operating on thin margins and we can see which ones have really high margins. And I would say that the National Academy for State Health Policies tool gives 10-year trend data, which has been immensely helpful to better understand hospital financials. Especially because if you look
0: at some of the public statements that some of these, again, this is not a homogenous bunch here. So I'm only talking about some hospitals. If you look at the public statements that they're making, they will always say that they're running in the red. They will always say yes, that. Always. But, then, but then, if you look at actually what their financials are, you will see that what they're yeah. counting as an expense is number one. This is why charge masters become a bit insidious. If they're charging $50,000 for something that really should be $1,000, then they're claiming that they gave $50,000 worth of charity care and then subtracting that off of their bottom line is just one thing. But then you have also they're like investing in some venture fund and that is also considered an expense. And then they're paying their CEO more than a Fortune 500 company, which is also an expense. So it starts to get very interesting if you actually... Look carefully at the financials that are being presented as opposed to what the public relations pitch says. So, Chris, just taking this back to something that, that you said, which I think Gloria kind of categorized things in order for there to be a functioning market, what the legislators, what we need to be doing here is the first category was public relations. And obviously, if one side of the table is amazing at public relations and is spending a lot of money on public relations, then in order for communities to have an equal share of voice, there really needs to be an effort put into what is the other side of the story, which is definitely going to require a collected effort. And both you, Gloria, you said this very eloquently, Chris as well, that there has to be a collective. Then the second kind of item in the stack is what is the legislation? And Gloria, you listed a number of ideas there. You said you had 11. Hopefully we can get them and put them in the show notes, the full (laughs) list. Chris, you had also listed legislation that really would be helpful here in ensuring that our communities are served by the institutions that are tax exempt in these areas. And then the third thing was litigation if all else fails, which we really didn't have a chance to get into, but that is also certainly starting to heat up. I'm seeing there's more lawsuits being filed lately, either by the OIG and DOJ or by private entities at a class action level. Than I've I've seen in the past. Is there anything that I neglected to ask which you think would be important to mention?
1: I would say getting the the attention of the C-suite of organizations will be critical. They have not been engaged, and some good reasons, some not good reasons. They don't have internal knowledge. But again, I I worked in large energy companies. Pipe is not their core business, but I guarantee they have folks who know more about pipe or as much than the organizations from whom they're purchasing. Think accounting, think legal. And yet when it comes to healthcare and understanding the healthcare industry and how it's financed, there is no expertise. I think if employers were to invest in internal expertise and not rely so much on external consultants. And these consultants are good, but first and foremost, they are concerned about their own bottom line and not so much about employers. So I think having internal expertise. Personally, I think this should be a C-suite position in any organization of size because it has that much of an impact. Most often it's passed to the CHRO, Chief Human Resources Officer, who I suspect when they're getting their MBA, they're not talking about healthcare finance too much. They talk about the other aspects of human resources, but this is such an important supply chain element that I think it needs attention. So, If I was to say anything, I would say, this has to trickle up and then trickle down. And I know in Texas, employers for affordable health care, part of our public relations campaign Will be focused on how best to engage the C-suite and the collective of employers.
0: Yeah, and for more on both of those topics, I would definitely listen to the show with Dan Mendelson, who gets into the five reasons why CEOs need to be involved in healthcare benefits, and then A.J. Loyackino from Capital RX, who talks at length about brokers and just the intricacies of pretty much agreeing with the statement that you just made—that an employer who isn't isn't actively involved in their own benefits can get wildly taken advantage of.
2: Yeah, I would say we just need more. We've only been, all of us have just now gotten transparency. The federal government had price transparency as a requirement for hospitals beginning January 1st of 2021 for insurance companies, July 1st of 2022. Sage transparency and Rand 4.0 just came out in May of 2022. So we need more transparency. And I can tell you for Sage, we're going to be adding over 2,000 ambulatory surgical centers to Sage transparency. And once all of the insurance information is cleaned up, all the data from the machine readable files is available, I'll be adding that to Sage Transparency. So we need more transparency. There's none in the pharmacy space, so we definitely need more there. That will lead us to more education, more market pressure and more policy change. So I do think transparency is foundational from a policy perspective, they can help us by increasing penalties and enforcing some of the penalties that they already have on the books to make sure that the insurance companies and the hospitals and all providers and employers, everyone in the supply chain is compliant with transparency. It's just foundational as we talked about earlier, just to kind of circle back to how we started. It's foundational if we wanna have a free market. So Chris, if someone would like to learn more about the work that you're doing, where would you direct them?
1: Well, to two different places, Stacey. One would be w. t x e a c h Dot org, that stands for Texas Employers for Affordable Healthcare. And related to more, please sign up to support us through our, through our website. The other for employers in the Houston market, it would be Houston BCH, Bravo Charlie Hotel, dot org.
0: And Gloria, where would you direct a list, our listeners who have interest in learning more?
2: We have the Employers Forum of Indiana website and for policy, you can go under initiatives and we have a whole policy section with bill summaries and other topics there. And then I would also recommend folks go to sagetransparency.com. It's been mentioned several times during this episode and, and other episodes, but that has a lot of great data and it's updated quarterly. So we'd love to have folks use the information as they're trying to align payment with the value of services provided. Thank you both for the great work that you both are doing. Chris
0: Skizak and Gloria Sachdev. thank you so much for being on Relentless Health Value today.
1: Thank you and really appreciated this opportunity.
2: Thank you, Stacey.
0: Hey, could I ask you to do me a favor? If you are part of the Relentless tribe working hard to transform healthcare in this country... I don't need to tell you that we need as many on our side as we can get. The most vital thing that you could do to help expand the reach of this show is to leave a rating or a review on iTunes or Spotify and or share this show with colleagues or decision makers. Personally, I cannot appreciate it more when I see the reviews and they really count towards our search rankings. Thanks so much for listening.